0: It was like looking at yourself and looking at your own talk. Was it better to have a guy I thought. think we always felt like we were kind of equal, obviously. To make the group stronger or to let me be stronger? And that decision was to let Paul in to make the group stronger. Instead of going for an individual thing, we went for the strongest format, you know, and for equal. This is Fine Tuning, an examination of Mark Lewison's Tune In. An original series by Another Kind of Mind. Welcome to episode 8 of our fine-tuning series, No Greater Buddy. This episode will be a bit different. There will be some of the usual examination and cross-referencing of source material, but mostly what we're looking at in this particular episode are Lewison's writing choices. How does he dramatize events and characterize the behavior of his subjects? When and where does he choose to editorialize with his own opinions and values? Does he urge the reader to think or feel a certain way about specific, difficult topics? If you've listened to our previous seven episodes, you'll now be well-versed in all the ways Mark Lewison's tune-in goes rather hard on Paul McCartney. You've heard us detail Toonin's portrayal of Paul as an attention seeker, cosplaying as a real artist, a deceitful child with an attitude problem, singularly condescending about George Harrison's age, excessively jealous and envious of others' talents, relationships, and popularity, careless towards his younger brother, Michael, who has nothing nice to say about Paul, an aggressive bully to Stuart Sutcliffe, who was telling the stark truth when he told a friend everyone hates Paul, and a cutting and concealed saboteur of Brian Epstein's hard work on behalf of the band. Fans of TuneIn sometimes explain its dismal portrait of Paul by arguing that Lewison just isn't afraid to call the Beatles out, or tell the unvarnished truth, that he is simply unbiased and unapologetic in his reporting of the facts. The Beatles weren't perfect, so we shouldn't expect the definitive history of the band to pretend they were. To test that theory, in this episode, we're going to take a look at how Toonin handles the less savory attitudes and behaviors of John Lennon. We'll see if Lewison applies the same unyielding scrutiny to John's behavior. Will he report John's violence, for example, as critically as he reports Paul's cutting, concealed, destabilizing, obstructive, ruinous, embarrassing, tardiness, for example? Well... Let's start with the negative word TuneIn ascribes to John eight times. Cruel. While John's humor and artwork is several times referred to as cruel, this cruelty is rarely, if ever, framed as a feature of his personality. Instead, it's an outgrowth of his breathtaking wit, or in some cases, his childhood trauma. Unlike Paul, whose jealousy, high self-regard, snippiness, obstinacy, cheapness, and general unlikability are just the way he is and should be taken at face value with no context needed. The John Lennon of TuneIn is a person with outstanding strength of character, absolutely brimming with redeeming qualities, but also a person who occasionally acts in a questionable manner. John may sometimes be cruel, but we are frequently reminded, sometimes in the same sentence, that he is also honest, tender, generous, sincere, faithful, loyal, forthright, fearless, benign, a hero, and above all, loved. Those are all Lewison's own words. The good always outweighs the bad. Now, we are not going to collect and report every instance of John's bad behavior for this episode. Our purpose is not to put John on trial. What we're looking at here is specifically In's coverage of his bad behavior. Are these events handled judiciously and reported as coldly as Paul McCartney's personal failings? Or does Lewison make a concerted, consistent effort to preserve and even enhance the reader's good opinion of John Lennon, even while reporting his worst behavior? Well, let's take a look, but a quick word before we begin. We just wanna say that we understand that it's not pleasant to confront the worst behavior of your fave personally i hate discovering shitty things the beatles did in paul mccartney's case i don't like him being an unfaithful trash boyfriend or yelling at the apple staff or saying something stupidly sexist or using slurs or being mean to mal evans or dismissive of george harrison or being passive aggressive or a dick or whatever. It's not fun to talk about those things. And if I were writing McCartney's biography, those probably would not be my favorite parts to write. So I understand and sympathize that Lewison doesn't enjoy criticizing John, but sometimes it's unavoidable. Sometimes on certain topics, you need to criticize your fave or at the very very least you need to refrain from excusing underplaying or distracting from the bad behavior now can lewison do that let's see On page 117, Lewison reports that John had a strange and prolonged obsession with deformities, one that dovetailed with his need to rattle on about anything that marked anyone as different Blacks, Jews, queers, and more, and wrap them up inside his humor. Often, when he noticed someone disabled, he'd make a loud comment, like Some people will do anything to get out of the army. Rich stuff from a youth still scheming a disappearing act the moment his call papers hit the Mendip's mat. Intolerable today, it was simply unremarkable in the 1950s. It wasn't nice, but it was said and done all the time. And while John's cripping made some people nervous or uncomfortable, he naturally felt this was their problem, not his. It often made others laugh and join in with him. So just to really break this down for a minute, Toonin is describing John being actively bigoted and mocking and bullying and harassing people. But let's take a look at the actual descriptors used. Okay, Other than intolerable today, Toonin describes John's attitudes and behaviors as a strange obsession A need to rattle on and wrap them up inside his humor, a loud comment, rich stuff, simply unremarkable, and it wasn't nice. Those are all neutral descriptors. Every single one is a neutral descriptor. Well, it wasn't nice is slightly judgmental. Technically, it is still neutral. Because saying something isn't nice, like colloquially, we understand that means it was mean, but you're not actually saying it was mean. You're just saying it wasn't. (laughs) You're right. (laughs) That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, So for the most part, he is intent on using neutral and non judgmental language. Well, you can have, quote, a strange obsession with deformities, unquote, for whatever psychological reason, but that has nothing to do with harassing people using wheelchairs. Well, of course. And even that word strange raises my eyebrow. Like, how odd. What a strange quirk of John's. He Mm -hmm. just had an obsession and rattled on and wrapped people up inside his humor (laughs) with loud comments. And as far as that behavior being simply unremarkable, Mm -hmm. uh, I think it depends who you ask. I think the people who were the ones being targeted would have found it remarkable. Well, and also people did remark on it. So it was remarkable. And even TuneIn reports that there was looking at feet and uncomfortable silences that would follow it. So that proves that this wasn't the norm. Yeah. Casual ableism absolutely was and still is very Mm -hmm. common, but being so preoccupied with it that you mockingly imitate people with disabilities on stage and on camera and in photos apropos of nothing is quite remarkable actually in any decade yeah or harassing strangers passing by yeah it's a remarkable impulse that's bullying tunin seems to be trying to convince us that just because john did these things he did them but it doesn't reflect badly on him as a person like these are just some questionable actions that don't illustrate anything deeper about him The implication seems to be like, well, maybe John said bigoted things sometimes, but that doesn't mean he was bigoted. Because that's what people said and did back then. Even though it acknowledges that this was unusual, but it was totally normal. Well, there's a difference between something being more acceptable and something being typical behavior. Yeah. Like, I'm sure it's true that many people around John didn't get offended or call him out for bullying people the way maybe they would today. But those same people also weren't the ones instigating it. Most people just don't have a desire to do that. But John did. Most people are not walking around looking for opportunities to bully vulnerable people because they think it's fun. That's just not most people's idea of a fun time in any decade but it was for john he was a bully and so that means that even for that time he was unusually guilty of these cruel behaviors Mm -hmm. and certainly he matured over the decades but sometimes because his early 70s image of a peace activist and right-minded liberal is so powerful and prominent to certain fans, especially those of Lewis's generation. I feel like it's hard to square that with the fact of John's earlier attitudes and behaviors. So maybe people want to believe that John was never a bully or a bigot. But I think that sells John short because, well, A, it's not reality. But B, it undersells John's growth. Mm -hmm. He started one way, but he evolved out of a really toxic mindset. Mm -hmm. I mean, was he the only person in the world who made tasteless jokes? Definitely not. When I was a kid, I had a book of tasteless jokes Mm. (laughs) that I got from like the library or like the book fair or something. I mean, yeah, of course. Obviously, attitudes and awareness have changed a lot in recent decades. Lots of entertainment from the 80s and 90s, let alone the 50s and 60s, don't hold up offensive humor wise. (laughs) Right. And to be clear, I enjoy dark humor as much as the next person. But tasteless jokes are a bit removed from directly and deliberately harassing people. I mean, you could, I guess you could make the argument that, like, morally, it's just as bad to make a joke behind somebody's back as it is to their face. And maybe that's true. But making a tasteless, cruel joke to somebody's face is an extra layer of, like, you want to hurt their feelings and you want to see it. Yeah, exactly. So I do think that speaks to something different. And by the way, some people will do anything to get out of the army well you were dodging service too john shouldn't really be the big takeaway here mm-hmm. like the joke wouldn't be okay even if john was a war hero yeah great point i do appreciate the like rich stuff aside though it is it is a rare example of tune in calling out john's hypocrisy yeah it's the only time that he kind of slaps his wrist Yeah. There are multiple references to John's mocking of disabilities throughout TuneIn, and these behaviors are never judged. In fact, Lewis and himself chooses to use the words cripple and cripping with alarming frequency and ease throughout the book. Yes, without quotation marks, as if these are neutral words in everyday vernacular. Yeah, cripping as a verb, meaning mockingly imitating people with disabilities. Now, the first four times Lewison uses that word, he does put it in quotes, but after that, he just uses it like a normal word, a further 15 times. And we understand that from his point of view, perhaps he's just trying to convey information succinctly but expediency is not a good enough reason to normalize language that is insensitive and dehumanizing yes same goes for the words deformed hunchback quasi dwarf and human grotesque which lewison also uses in the book and no one is perfect We've all used offensive words and probably will again, even if only accidentally or thoughtlessly. Well, yeah, and preferred terminology changes. So a word that's no longer in use may have been acceptable 30 years ago, etc. I mean, that's kind of the point. Mm -hmm. Yes, but writing and proofreading and editing and writing again a book (laughs) is a great opportunity to make sure you're not doing that. And sometimes tune in just has a really flip tone about it that just does not sit well. From page 534, John covered envelopes with hearts and kisses and wrote, Postman, postman, don't be slow. I'm in love with sin, so go, man, go. <laughs> These were steamy letters full of sex, passion, and cripples. What? Not cute. Not cute not funny not funny i assume this is an attempt to normalize or take the wind out of these antics but we wish mr lewison would not do this right there's no reason to do this i would rather remain uncomfortable by john's language and behavior than have to read this outdated term over and over again Yeah it's good to feel uncomfortable about the past sometimes absolutely that is the correct and appropriate reaction furthermore believe it or not tune sometimes teeters dangerously close to turning its descriptions of john's ableism into actual compliments i don't know daphne that that sounds unbelievable you'll have to give me some examples All right, well, get ready. Page 806. Brian failed to curb John's cripple act on stage. He pointed out that while plenty in the audience responded well to it, his actions also caused offense, even if just to one person. John may have toned it down a degree, but he didn't cut it out. Crips were part of his personality, and his personality was on the stage, always. And then page 1110 at their Empire Club performance. Hold on to your hat. John went into his cripple act, bigger now for the bigger stage, thrusting his hands together spasmodically, madly casting his eyes, pushing his tongue into his cheek and bawling, clap your hands. And when Paul added, or you can stamp your feet, John thrust out his back leg and stabbed it several times convulsively into the stage, cripping, stamp your feet. It didn't matter that this was the biggest show of their lives. John just did it more, naturally expressing himself, keeping things grounded, pricking the tension, prompting taut laughter. And what he found, here in the mighty empire in 1962, as everywhere else, was that no one said, you can't. What? Yeah. No one stopped him. That's Mm -hmm. the rationale? Okay. Oh my god, where do I begin? Okay, Plenty responded well, but a small minority were offended. I mean, probably just one person. Okay, do we really... Need to explain why bullying minorities is wrong? Is that where we're at? Do you understand why the butt of a joke may feel differently than the people making the jokes? You've made the point that standards were different. And I think everyone reading Tune In is fully capable of understanding that okay we understand the passage of time (laughs) the linear nature of time yes yeah we get that however your reading audience does not need to be subjected to the attempted normalization of this behavior all over again Mm -hmm. or even worse attempts to convince us that if we could all just lighten up, we'd see that it was actually hilarious. Mm, yes. Or we'd see that John was just naturally expressing himself, keeping things grounded, or pricking the tension. Because those those are all good things to do. Like, those are positive descriptions. Why write that way about someone using their platform to mock marginalized people? Also, like, why why spend so much time giving us a very detailed visual of precisely how John would mock them? This isn't the only time TuneIn does it. This is probably the longest, though. Mm-hmm. You know, we get the eyes, the tongue in the cheek, the spasmodic uh, clapping, the stabbing of his leg. Like, when you do that, it starts to sound like you're enjoying writing about it. Just little heads up there. Well, and if you want to privately enjoy that, that's your own demon. Like, I don't... That's between you and your yes. god. Asking the reader to enjoy it? Yeah. Is so... So inappropriate. Yeah, just don't. Okay. Lewis and then doubles down even harder and suggests that only someone of low intelligence would take offense to John's bigoted humor. He describes the correspondence John had with a fan named Lindy Ness on pages 618 and 619. Her letters were full of wit and wordplay and John could respond in kind, scribbling the kind of pages he'd sent to his late friend, Stuart. It gave him continuity and only slightly did he moderate his language for a 15 year old girl. Though she was smart enough to take it and wasn't going to complain or be offended. John sent her several written rambles packed with non sequiturs, jokes, funny lines attributed to Blacks, Jews, cripples, and God, deformed drawings, and crucifixion images. Okay. These were offensive. Offensive and they were intended to be offensive yes offending minorities was an extremely popular mainstream and frankly basic form of so-called edgy humor amongst white people for decades you are correct that it wasn't extraordinary in that sense but TuneIn has already shown that john loves to shock offend and draw attention to himself so why can't lewison just accept that being deliberately offensive was part of john's sense of humor yes he's getting a reaction and he's probably doing it to get a reaction to make himself feel powerful yeah he wants attention mm-hmm. and Tudin's tone of john wasn't racist he just liked racist jokes is extremely tiresome that whole debate is tiresome the distinction between whether or not a person is a racist or is just being racist is is meaningless to me we can't know or prove what's in a person's heart we don't have to label a person's character we can just identify language and behavior and and say like this is wrong and we're not going to do it anymore yeah the effect on the people in the crosshairs is the same impact is more important than intent also tune in writes about lindy ness she was smart enough to take it um but what is she taking is she a member of one of those marginalized groups that John is mocking because if not i'm not sure how she's taking anything or why her not being personally offended yeah. Is relevant. Means anything. Yeah, it's meaningless. Yeah, that's a great point. Maybe she just also liked racist jokes. Maybe it wasn't that she was smart. Maybe she thought racism was also funny, the (laughs) way that John did. Exactly. Exactly. What the fuck? What do you what? She was smart enough to take it and wasn't gonna complain or be offended. What are you what are these words that are coming out of this book? phoebe explain this does that mean that people who do complain or who are offended when they learn about these things john did does that mean they're just not as smart as lindy ness was uh i i don't see any other way to interpret that i think that is definitely what Tunin is suggesting but i must be real dumb because (laughs) i don't see the connection between intelligence and not being offended ah Like those aren't connecting for me. Why would it make her exceptionally dumb to take offense at a time when most would not? Right. Like wouldn't that make her, if anything, exceptionally enlightened? Yeah, wouldn't that make her advanced? I mean, if the point is that these cartoons displayed erotypical bigotry, just say that. How does that make her extra smart? I don't know. I don't know, man. I notice he never gives us any specifics about these cartoons. Hmm. Well, they must not have been that funny. (laughs) Hmm. Here's another slightly strange account of what I assume is bigoted language on John's part but it's kind of hard to tell because of how the passage is written this is from page 281 and it takes place immediately after Julia's death to everyone John's behavior now seemed worse by degrees he was the definitively gifted yet troubled young man the mix that defined him. Artistic and sarcastic, literate and cruel, brutal and tender, swift and funny, contemptuous of all pretense. His obsession with deformities, race and religion, seemed to have gone up a few notches, and absolutely everything was done for laughs, to amuse the audience he always needed. Jeff Mohammed exposed this one day, when he jumped on a passenger bus while John was pointing at something in a shop window. John Haig witnessed it and says John was furious at being left alone like that. Okay. Uh, So Jeff and John were window shopping or strolling along the boulevard or something. And then Jeff abruptly jumped on the bus without saying goodbye, I assume which angered yeah. john yeah but it's so weird that lewison doesn't report or even describe what john said or did right i have to assume that since Tunin has just been telling us about john's obsession with race and religion and jeff mahomed's father is indian and he is as lewison described him a swarthy man and george is quoted saying jeff looked like an arab on page 259 i think we're supposed to conclude that jeff was treated to some of john's increasing hostility and aggression over race and religion yeah so okay so either some islamophobic diatribe or just yelled mm-hmm. a few epithets or what that leaves a lot to the imagination honestly why would you bring it up and then not even say what it was it's odd yeah it's like stamping redacted on the whole like, incident <laughs> like what, what was it It just makes it sound like unprintably bad yeah even the way it's worded it's almost like Lewis and saying it's jeff's fault Jeff exposed this one day. Yeah, well, he shouldn't have jumped on that bus. I guess. Yeah, for leaving John alone, which made him furious. Yeah. He which compare. by the way, if John was furious, that means this was definitely not done for laughs, even though Lewis and also just told us that everything was done for laughs to amuse the audience. Uh yeah doesn't sound like anybody was laughing Mm-mm. Uh even if you don't want to repeat the word or the words that john said you could just write that he said something nasty or inappropriate yeah. or racist or whatever yeah the paragraph is so convoluted like he put so much space between race and religion and john having a blow up it's it's just not clear so i'm pretty darn sure that's what happened and that's the story that tune in is relating it just does it in such a way that unless you really think about it it, you don't make the connection they're like oh john said something racist at his friend yeah but don't just leave a gap there and make me fill in the blanks (laughs) like if you're gonna tell me about it tell me about it Maybe this is abridged. Maybe there was originally more and maybe it still exists in the extended version, but it kind of got chopped up. Okay, there is one other thing I want to briefly discuss. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. The opening line of this paragraph, To everyone, John's behavior now seemed worse by degrees, is referring to John's behavior immediately following Julia's death. hmm Yeah. And Lewison writes, his obsession with deformities, race, and religion seemed to have gone up a few notches, uh, which apparently is what results in this, you know, uh, blow up with Jeff. So is Lewison reporting that John's grief over his mother's death increased his bigoted behavior and language? Yeah, his bullying of racial and religious minorities. Um, if that's what he's saying i feel like that is actually pretty revealing and not in a flattering way yeah which again is more weird because it's presented in tune in as some sort of mitigating factor don't get me wrong grief especially repressed or poorly processed grief or trauma can certainly make a person all kinds of things withdrawn surly morose whatever irritable anxious Mm -hmm. sure even acting out getting in trouble on purpose or accidentally on purpose or whatever Mm -hmm. and uh, i do think it should be considered when judging a person's behavior within reason of course Mm -hmm. but grief is not an excuse for bigotry correct those things aren't Related. So, if Toonin is arguing that John's grief made him more outwardly bullying, specifically toward vulnerable communities, that's a very bad impulse. Yeah, it is no kind of mitigating factor whatsoever. No, it's actually pretty damning. If John is upset, he will lash out. He'll take it out on people who are most vulnerable i'm not saying that to be mean to john yeah the book just told us that yeah tune in spends a lot of time on john's great qualities no directly before this he gave us a litany of attributes of john's we got cruel and brutal but we also got definitively gifted yet troubled artistic, sarcastic, literate, tender, swift, funny, and contemptuous of pretense. I mean, the the only thing that's even remotely bad in that is like cruel and brutal, but brutal is often used to describe his humor and his laceration of the establishment and whatever. If you're going to spend that much time on John's good qualities, you're responsible to also tell us about... His bad qualities that are going to be very, very relevant to all of his personal relationships, including within the band. Yes. John kicks people when they're down. And when he's down. Yeah. Lashes out in awful ways. That's important. If John lashes out ruthlessly at others when he's down and presses especially hard when he has an advantage that goes to his credibility that means you need to be careful about believing whatever he says when he's lashing out absolutely yes you cannot assume that anyone he lashes out at must deserve it i mean we have the proof here that he's lashed out many times at people who did nothing to deserve it of course and people he cared about were not spared this treatment In fact, they usually got the worst of it. Yeah, which is important information. This next incident is kind of a minor one, for this episode anyway. It's really a case of perpetuating an already bad take and just failing to look closer or think deeper about it. On page 201, Tunin recounts an incident at the wedding of George Harrison's brother, Harry. George would recall them being drunk, and the groom remembers John's most singular contribution to the event, pouring his pint of ale over the head of an elderly lady pianist and wedding guest, and announcing, I anoint thee, David. Outlandish behavior was so typical at Liverpool parties, no one took against John for his action, not even the beer-soaked woman. She just walked off, silently but stickily, to try to dry herself. Typical. Typical. So, so okay. It was typical to throw beer on old ladies at Liverpool yeah. parties. Yeah. I just want to make sure that everybody heard that. So throwing beer on an old woman, not that it's not unheard of, but that it's actually typical. It was to be expected, like to be honest, why was that woman there if she didn't want to have beer <laughs> thrown out her? Well, and even if stupid stuff like this was not unusual at parties, it's still ridiculous for Lewison to write. No one took against John for his action, not even the beer soaked woman. Uh, the obvious question is, what recourse did she have how do you assume she would act if she did object how could she possibly have defended herself against john lennon why would an elderly woman not mind being doused in beer by a large healthy teenager who has been repeatedly characterized throughout tune in as menacing and intimidating is that the most logical read of this story okay the source for this anecdote is harry harrison george's brother and here's harry's account from living in the material world an elderly lady who was one of the guests came along to play the piano she was a real pub player she could really hammer out tunes that everybody wanted to sing to The three lads reappeared from the bar, pints in hand, and John just poured a pint over this lady's head, just straight over the head, saying, I anoint thee, David, and then just walked away. And this lady surprised me, because there was absolutely nothing. There was no reaction. She just smiled and got up and went away and got dry again. So all this does is describe the woman's behavior it says nothing about how she perceived the incident or felt about it assuming she didn't mind because she didn't complain or fight back is ludicrous yes you might as well argue that no one in the 60s minded being sexually harassed (laughs) they smiled sometimes and didn't say anything you know what i feel pretty confident that this elderly woman (laughs) did not in fact enjoy being doused in john's disgusting spit beer mm-hmm. and that she very well may have taken against him for it definitely and her smile and calm reaction means nothing it might have just been shock or surprise or you know she's intimidated she wants to placate she's embarrassed people smile when they're embarrassed you know Just resigned she's like and there it goes I was having fun being an awesome old lady playing piano, banging out tunes at a wedding, and making everyone happy. But I should have known that would be short lived. Also, at the very least, it's ridiculous on its face to state that no one took against John for this, because that's impossible to know, and just comes off like very weirdly overeager. So this next section is regarding Brian Epstein from page 550. There was always the other side of the coin, when John's humor turned and he would lash out. According to Pete Schotten, though no one else, there was an ugly incident during the DECA session, when Brian made a remark about something John was singing or playing, and John shouted back, You've got nothing to do with the music. You go back and count your money, you Jewish git. Brian apparently seethed and blushed and left the room for 20 minutes. It would have been another of those heavy, awkward Beatle moments when everyone looked at their feet and then carried on like nothing had happened. But it was also typical of John Lennon that he would lacerate with one breath and forget it the next and still have a close rapport with that person. And in the Epstein-Beatles axis, the core, essential relationship was always that of Brian and John it's nasty and inappropriate and anti-semitic just Mm -hmm. kind of on its face it just is what it is you don't need to berate john for it because it's transparently bad right however you also don't have to remind me that brian and john still had a close rapport after this remark like we're aware well And if you want to do that, to give caveats and a glimpse into the future to assure us, hey, it turned out okay, you know, be consistent and do it for Paul as well. Contrast this passage with how Lewison treats Paul's tension with others very, very differently. As a reminder, he called it the stark truth that everyone hated Paul in Hamburg He wrote that Stuart's death slammed the lid on Astrid's dislike of Paul. And, to bring it back to Brian, Lewison wrote that Brian and Paul's relationship was testy from the beginning and set that way into the future. Even worse, Lewison chose only to report the clash of personalities and moody, temperamental, and difficult portion of a passage from Brian's book, A Cellar Full of Noise. While choosing to omit the part where Brian wrote Paul has great tenderness, great feeling, and great loyalty, and that Brian holds him in high esteem. Those are portions of the same passage from the same book. But we only got the bad parts. Brian also wrote in 1964 that Paul had a heart of gold, by the way. Just throwing that out there. (sighs) And also, to return to John's comment, it's not okay to be anti-Semitic if you're still close to a person. You don't get to be anti-Semitic to your foe workers because you have a business relationship with them. You don't get to be anti-Semitic to your friends, even if you remain friends, or to your family members. No, you don't get to have relationships with people, but keep your prejudices in your back pocket bring out whenever you want to put them in their place that's not okay the notable thing is that lewison does know how to do this correctly because earlier on page 550 right above that last excerpt paul mccartney recalls having an anti-semitic thought and lewison has no problem calling paul out for that Right? Calling it what it is. So he writes, Paul also recalls having an anti-Semitic thought. One night when they were out with Brian and one of his friends, Tony Doran. They were in a Liverpool pub called The Old Dive when an argument bubbled up over whose packet of cigarettes was on the table. They were Brian's, but Paul found something very Jewish in the way he claimed them. So yeah he rightfully labels that thought of paul's which it sounds like paul called himself out for as anti-semitic and that's it he makes no apologies for it rightfully so right but he can't bring himself to do that with john he goes on to write that in the epstein Beatles axis the core essential relationship was always that of Brian and John. I'm not sure what I'm meant to take away from that comment. I guess it's to imply that John and Brian were always close, and so that's proof Brian didn't mind the anti-Semitic comments that much. I think the main purpose is to suggest, you know, the question: Well, how bad could it really have been if Brian still loved John more than he loved the other Beatles afterward? Mm, yeah. And this is a pattern throughout the book. Whenever John's bad behavior is addressed, it is nearly always softened by a loving comment immediately afterward. And to be clear, I enjoy reading nice things about John Lennon. I just don't enjoy having to read his worst behavior massaged into a compliment. Every time. I'm also not super thrilled with the choice of the word lacerate which Mm. harkens back to when Lewis enthusiastically wrote that John could lacerate with a brevity and wit that took the breath away. Like, this is just garden-variety anti-Semitism. Please don't try to make it sound sexy or clever. Yeah, good call. Lacerate is kind of one of those words, like edgy or acerbic, that puts a a sexy spin on... Just mean behavior. Go count your money, Jew. Like that's yeah, not lacerating. Right. No, no one's breath was stolen by that level of wit. <laughs> Thank you. So Lewison has a template for handling John's worst behavior and the basic tactic is this. Begin with a reminder of John's strength, usually his humor, charisma, or some young boy's desire to follow his lead. And if possible, provide a quote from someone highlighting those positive qualities, humor, charisma, or leadership. Then provide the negative information as neutrally as possible, and then quickly move on to yet another positive comment or quote about John. So it's ripping the Band-Aid off, a very brief, neutral description of the bad behavior, sandwiched between two complimentary examples or passages. This strategy occurs throughout the book. Now that you have it and you know what to look for, they're easy to spot. But we'll give you two more examples. As I'm sure most listeners are aware, um, John Lennon was violent toward women. And our next section will deal with that. And as much as TuneIn celebrates, and some may argue glorifies, John's so-called gang lading, dominance, and general eagerness to use his fists Tune in also acknowledges that domestic violence is generally frowned upon in this modern era. We're going to discuss the passage in Tune In about his relationship with Salma Pickles. This passage describes an assault and, you know, the ensuing events, and it's kind of rough. So just wanted to give everyone a heads up. Okay. The following is from pages 209. To 10. John and Thelma had been going out about six months, when their relationship fell apart. The art school held a regular dance in the canteen, usually on the third Saturday of each month. Although they didn't always go, they went to one held around Easter. During the course of this, John leaned over to Thel and asked if she fancied going for a five-mile run. She agreed, and they slipped upstairs to the art history room, assuming it would be free. Thelma said it was dark, but... We could tell there were other couples in there, probably having a five-mile run of their own, or trying to. I told John I was uneasy about doing it in a place like that, especially with other people there. And he wasn't happy with my attitude. When I insisted on going and got up to leave, he became rough and whacked me one. His fist connected somewhere between my shoulder and my head, around my neck. in continues. Thelma stormed off and decided that was the end of their relationship. She did her best to avoid John throughout the following week, and when this wasn't possible, she simply ignored him. He started to mock her, but she resisted his jibes. And this went on for several days until reaching its culmination in the crack pub. She says, He was still mocking me in front of others, and then he called me an edge-of-the-bed virgin. That really pissed me off because we both knew it wasn't true. He was just being sarcastic and wounding because he was pissed off at me. And I got so enraged, I shouted back, Don't blame me just because your mother's dead. It was a cruel remark. But he knew all about those. It just seemed the easiest way to get back at him. in continues. John and Thelma had reached the end of the line, though they'd remain friends and keep in touch for several years. In an interview in 1980, John reflected on his teenage behavior, saying... Hitting females is something I'm always ashamed of and still can't talk about. I'll have to be a lot older before I can face in public how I treated women as a youngster. Lewison then continues, Except that he was talking about it, and with the sort of candor customary, even when it was to his own detriment. In 1967, John mentioned it within a song lyric, and spoke about it to his biographer, Hunter Davies, saying, I was in a blind rage for two years. I was either drunk or fighting. There was something the matter with me. Lewison then opines. This was also, of course, the way it was in many other relationships, and had been for a long time, and would be, in the future, especially in the north of England. It wasn't excusable, but nor was it unusual. And such attitudes were reinforced constantly in receptive minds by the silver screen. John later remarked, not only did we dress like James Dean and walk around like that, but we acted out those cinematic charades. A he-man was supposed to smack a girl across the face, make her succumb in tears, and then make love. Most of the guys I knew in Liverpool thought that's how you do it. So, I'm struck by so many things here. First and foremost, that we are not being asked to empathize with Thelma, but with John. While we hear... Plenty of censure of John and Thelma's own words. The only criticism Lewis and himself provides is to say that this assault was, quote, not excusable, unquote, which I think we can all agree is very mild criticism, especially since it's immediately followed by, but nor was it unusual. The entirety of the rest of Lewis own commentary is spent providing supposedly extenuating circumstances. He also chooses this time, he chooses this story, to praise John for his customary candor, even to his own detriment. In other words, Lewison finds a way to give John literally just as much, if not more, praise than criticism yeah john assaulted thelma in an attempt to coerce her into sex yeah if that had frightened or hurt her to the point that she didn't try to get away and then john followed through that would have been rape you can't hit someone into consent that makes it not consent well, and then the other thing is, it's not as if he immediately regrets it and tries to make things right with her. Right. It, like, he hits her and then and then she runs off. It's not like he goes, oh my god, what have I done? No. Instead, he continues to harass her. Yeah, he doubles down. He started to mock her, but she resisted his jibes. And this went on for several days. And then he embarrassed her in front of a group of people calling her an edge of the bed virgin which is harassment and then Thelma recounts her retort of not my fault your mother's dead and Lewison includes her self-admonishment I knew it was cruel even though that nasty quip is the only way she can defend herself when john is sexually shaming her in public in front of her peers but lewison doesn't even add a word of support like minor compared to what thelma suffered at john's hands but at least she got a shot off or something like that he just lets her call herself cruel and then proceeds to defend and praise john for the rest of the section all right let's take a look at the quotes in this passage okay First up, TuneIn presents the Hunter Davies quote as if it was in reference to Thelma, but it actually is in reference to Cynthia. As a reminder, this is what TuneIn writes. In 1967, John mentioned it within a song lyric and spoke about it to his biographer Hunter Davies, to his biographer Hunter Davies saying, I was in a blind rage for two years. I was either drunk or fighting. There was something the matter with me. Now, here's the full quote from the Davies book. So Cynthia says, Molly, the cleaning woman, once caught John hitting me, really clouding me. She said I was a silly girl to get mixed up with something like that. John says, I was in a sort of blind rage for two years. I was either drunk or fighting. It had been the same with other girlfriends I'd had. There was something the matter with me. And then Cynthia continues. She says, I kept hoping he'd get over it, but I wondered if I could stick it long enough to find out. I blamed his background, his home, Mimi and the college college just wasn't the place for him institutions aren't made for john so the irony of course is that even cynthia 1967 is saying like i, w- I made excuses for him i blamed everything but john his yeah. background is home mimi college and that still happens today and it happens again here in tune in yeah john admits there was something the matter with me But then Lewison immediately undercuts John's statement by launching into what basically amounts to, no, there was nothing the matter with John. He was totally normal. Domestic violence was absolutely normal for the time and place. That is so insulting. John knows right from wrong. He said there was something the matter with me. And he was right. He's not asking you to defend him about this. Stop defending him. Well, and he reports two separate people who said to Cynthia, girl. It's true. Do not take that. That is not okay. That's right. And relatedly, this is kind of the wrong quote. To use to give John praise for being so clear-eyed and honest about his own behavior because in this quote from 1980 he's specifically talking about his behavior as a youngster when in actuality just seven years prior to the quote at the distinctly non-youngster age of 34 he was physically abusive to May Peng. In fact Tune in frames all of John's violence as his teenage behavior and then uses the quote about John being in a blind rage for two years. So, that plus John's youngster quote here could easily mislead the reader into thinking that this was just a teenage phase that lasted a couple of years for John when he was angry and grieving and getting drunk a lot. Like, it was just an anomalous period in his life, which he grew out of, and none of his future girlfriends had anything to fear from him. And that is not true. Next, let's talk about how John's two quotes are abridged. Tunin reports the Hunter Davies quote as, I was in a blind rage for two years. I was either drunk or fighting. There was something the matter with me. However, the full quote is, I was in a sort of blind rage for two years. I was either drunk or fighting. It had been the same with other girlfriends I'd had. There was something the matter with me. So Lewison chose to omit the fact that John admitted he had treated other girlfriends, plural, the same way. With no ellipses. Well, and TuneIn presents the quote as if it was in reference to Thelma. When it was actually in reference to Cynthia. If John was alluding to Thelma at all, she would have been one of the other girlfriends. The 1972 Sandra Schiebe interview quote, which Tudin finishes the section with the one about uh, James Dean, <laughs> uh, likewise has a particularly damning sentence taken out. Lewison reports John's the he-man was supposed to smack a girl across the face, make her come in tears and then make love, which obviously is terrible but he omits the follow-up sentence John continued if she didn't lie down first, you smacked her in the face and then you got what you wanted hmm. uh, which needless to say is horrific horrific i don't know i think maybe it does need saying mm-hmm. i mean it's certainly very blunt so thanks for being honest i guess but it's also a pretty shocking confession and that is my point that in both of these quotes from john and chose to omit what are arguably the very worst parts and in the case of the hunter davies quote like a Pretty crucial piece of information. If we're gonna talk about this. Mm-hmm. I mean, talk about it or don't. Right. And what I mean is the fact that John was violent to his other girlfriends. Plural. Yeah, according to him. Right. Which wouldn't even be necessary to mention if Lewison hadn't chosen to frame the Thelma Pickles incident as the fleeting poor judgment of an impressionable grieving teenager yeah i mean we don't need a full accounting of all john's sins throughout his life here especially if we're limiting the book to events that occurred prior to 1963 but by the same token you can't close the book on john's violence in 1958 and imply that he was nonviolent from that point forward that is yeah. massively misleading right One thing that I find very confusing is that Lewis and Wrights accept that he was talking about it, and with the sort of candor, customary, even when it was to his own detriment. Yeah, I'm wondering what negative effects John experienced because of these candid admissions. Uh, I'm confused about that too, Daphne. I don't understand how it was to his own detriment. I can't point to anything. No, because there isn't anything. And in 1980, let alone the 70s and 60s, John would have had no expectation that there would be any fallout from him admitting these things. If John had been volunteering this information today, then yeah, it would be to his own detriment. Most likely, yeah. Or at least more likely. Mm Mm-hmm. But at that time, there was no risk of him losing prestige, money, reputation. John had no reason to fear being canceled in 1980. That wasn't the thing. And even today in 2023, he may or may not lose a contract or a deal or a television spot or whatever. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, there's often no repercussions from things like this. So Mm -hmm. even today, and also, lewison just wrote it wasn't excusable but nor was it unusual and such attitudes were reinforced constantly constantly so besides oh. the fact that we can't point to any tangible damage that it did to john to talk about it lewison literally just told us it wasn't a big deal and it happened all the time and that it was sanctioned by the culture especially in the north of england apparently mm. that's another problem with this maybe Lewis is looking at domestic violence statistics for Northern England versus Southern England. And that's, I guess that's possible. And obviously I am not British and British North South regionalism stuff is a very <laughs> complex topic, mm. <laughs> which I'm not really qualified to comment on, but still I got to give a side eye to Lewis and making a blanket statement that abuse of women was especially common in Northern England well without a footnote to a statistic Uh, yeah but maybe i'm off base there british listeners feel free to weigh in also he uses a quote from hunter davies 1967 biography to show that john is bravely volunteering this information but cynthia was also interviewed by hunter davies so i don't know what basis lewison has to think that john voluntarily brought it up when cynthia was talking about it to hunter davies i mean you could certainly make the case that john didn't deny it but did he volunteer that information that's not clear to me one of these quotes is from 1980 and that's the one i think he's talking about the sort of candor even when it was to his own detriment So I take that to be about the 1980 quote. It's already known at that point. I'm sure there were some fans, like particularly some women, who it gave them a non-favorable view of John. That's not even close to being actual consequences to your behavior. That's literally just somebody not approving of your behavior. That's not a consequence. It is not, no. So again, don't know what he means by to his own detriment. If anything, it's to John's benefit. I honestly think that John's honesty about his abusive behavior is his one saving grace because it's what everyone points to in his defense. You know, at least he admitted it and talked honestly about it. And to your point about Cynthia, it is true that even if she was the one who had, you know, spilled the beans with Hunter Davies originally, (laughs) John could have chosen never to bring it to the public's attention again. If he wanted to keep it on the down low, he could have, you know, tried to cover it up a bit, I guess, but he didn't. Yes, that's true. He spoke openly about it in 67, in the early 70s, and in 1980. But, okay, for example, in the early 70s, he talked about his history of violence as part of the culture he grew up with and participated in and benefited from saying you know my wife yoko and the modern feminist movement have taught me that women are not in fact men's property but that's definitely the attitude i had for most of my life and yeah it's cool that john changed his thinking in that regard and cared enough to talk about it publicly but suggesting that john suffered any sort of negative consequences for admitting his violence against his girlfriends and wives implies that women in the 70s had the power to inflict consequences on him for that, which they very much did not. Correct. I hope it's clear what the difference is there, like what I'm saying. If you want to give him credit for being candid about his shortcomings, that's more than fine yeah but martyring him for it and implying that he made a great personal sacrifice is fantastical he was just sharing he was just sharing his personal journey yeah and knew that it wasn't gonna affect him and it didn't (laughs) like right there were no there were no way that's what i'm saying like this argument is ludicrous on its face we have the ability to to look back in history the hunter davies book did it send shock waves when john admitted to really clouding cynthia no if you're gonna say that the culture of the times is a mitigating factor in john's behavior then you also have to acknowledge that He... he wasn't opening himself up to consequences by admitting it correct and and for god's sake he referred to the Hunter Davies book as whitewashed. I mean, hmm. yeah, Mimi went through that text with a fine tooth comb. And was like, you're <laughs> yeah. not saying this about Julia, you know? Like, she took a bunch of stuff out. Nobody gave a crap about Cynthia getting hit in that book. Mm-hmm. wasn't a concern. I'm not not giving him credit for talking about it. I'm just saying that isn't worth much. That's not, you know, like it's, exactly. The credit is very small. Like, I'm happy to give (laughs) it to him, but it's only like 25 cent, bro. Yeah, exactly. We also have no reason to assume that we must already know everything there is to know about John's violence toward women. In fact, it is more logical to assume that we don't know everything there is to know. Maybe there's more. Maybe there's worse. And John meant it when he said, I still can't talk about it. I'll have to be a lot older before I can face it in public. And for that matter, I I think that's safe to assume about all the Beatles. Mm -hmm. We don't know everything about their lives. Please don't think that we know everything about their lives. (laughs) Yeah. We, We don't know their darkest secrets. Yeah. So I don't care for how eager lewison is to counter john's quote by saying but john was talking about it as if john must be selling himself short there i mean i understand as a fan wanting to interpret that way and give john maximum benefit of the doubt but maybe john meant what he said maybe he only gave us the tip of the iceberg and when he said i still can't talk about it he's referring to things we don't know about yeah like you pointed out that's unknowable to us we can't know that so it's it's kind of an overreach on Lewis's part mm-hmm. i get it i want to interpret crummy things in the least awful way possible but you know right sometimes people are awful yeah accepting that will be okay it'll be okay if we accept that yes yes if that lowers your opinion of a person that's okay that is probably appropriate if you think they're better than slapping women around yes then when you find out they slapped women around you should think less of them than you did when you thought they did not do that i mean you can't navigate around that that just is what it is yeah yeah we need to take these people off of the pedestals we have them on they're just talented people yeah yeah now i feel pretty confident that someone in the audience will think well lewison is just providing context to explain to the reader that times were different but if Lewison wanted to provide context, he could have written about the unjust legal system in the 50s and 60s and Thelma's lack of recourse and how John was fortunate to live in an era that wouldn't prosecute him for this. Unfortunate to live in an era that was, you know, relentlessly pressuring him to prove his masculinity in all kinds of toxic ways that hurt him and everyone around him. Yes, but fortunate That he grew up in a time that greatly favored his rights over others. Yes. If you want to talk, times were different. Talk about that from the perspective of the people who were oppressed. Talk about how Thelma had been conditioned by the culture to overlook that sort of behavior. Rather than taking their future letters as evidence that John's actions couldn't have been that bad or that He was such a great guy that she was willing to overlook it. And doesn't that speak so well of him? Talk about Thelma's likely internalized misogyny. Don't just talk about the culture of the times in terms of how we need to keep that in mind as a mitigating factor on behalf of the privileged aggressor. Thelma's acceptance of that treatment didn't occur in a vacuum. As much as John was socialized to be violent, Thelma was socialized to accept violence exactly the context of how things were at the time is helpful to explain why there were no repercussions well yeah why john felt free to do this in public with other people around that doesn't mean that it's less bad correct it doesn't mean it was less bad getting punched doesn't hurt less Just because you grow up in a time that doesn't value your personhood. Yes, John and the other Beatles are allowed to treat women like property, knock them around a bit without consequence. They can be casually racist, anti-Semitic, ableist. Obviously, it's not John's fault that he has those privileges. He has them whether he wants them or not. That's criticism of society not of john lennon but when how and why a person chooses to wield their privilege does tell you something about them Mm -hmm. just as it does now it did and does then the entire thrust of this passage was don't judge john too harshly but you know what readers can make their own decisions about these matters when you spend the entire passage defending and praising John and turning this story into basically a net positive for him, you are diminishing the negative effects on Thelma and downplaying the seriousness of what occurred, which is not okay. Sending the message that sexual assault is ever or was ever not that big a deal is incredibly harmful yes you have responsibilities other than simply to john lennon correct and writing it wasn't excusable it's not a get out of jail free card okay i can read i can mm-hmm. see what you're doing if right. you write it wasn't excusable and then immediately offer five excuses in rapid succession <laughs> then you're talking out of both sides of your mouth Mm -hmm. for this next and final anecdote the information we have kind of raises more questions than it answers But the details we do have paint a very alarming picture. And perhaps it is these shocking details that cause Lewis to, in our opinion, wildly overcompensate in his conclusion to this story. This incident occurs in Hamburg, uh, and George Harrison relates it in Derek Taylor's book, 50 Years Adrift. On page 891, Toonan quotes George as saying the following. One night, John came in, and some chick was in bed with Paul, and he cut all of her clothes up with a pair of scissors and was stabbing the wardrobe. Everybody was lying in bed, thinking, oh, fuck, I hope he doesn't kill me. He was a frothing, mad person. He knew how to have fun. And fun is in quotes. (laughs) Now, here's a longer version of the same anecdote, which George tells in the anthology. The down, adverse effects of drink and preludence, where you'd be up for days, were that you'd start hallucinating and getting a bit weird. John would sometimes get on the edge. He'd come in in the early hours of the morning and be ranting, and I'd be lying there pretending to be asleep, hoping he wouldn't notice me. One time, Paul had a chicken bed, and John came in and got a pair of scissors and cut all her clothes into pieces, and then wrecked the wardrobe he got like that occasionally it was because of the pills and being up too long so paul is having sex with a woman or had recently finished having sex with a woman which we can assume because she is naked in his bed and john destroys her clothing and then violently destroys their furniture stabbing it with a pair of scissors while this woman and presumably paul are both still naked we don't have any further context for this at all we don't know what set john off and we don't know why he targeted this woman was he upset about paul having sex with her was this someone he knew was he jealous we don't know but instead of asking any of those questions which you'd have to think he would if the roles were reversed and Paul behaved this way towards John's date. Lewison presents the information like this. George was second only to John in the swallowing of prellies and knew better than most the sum effect of taking too many for too long, how the combination of pills plus booze plus several sleepless days caused hallucinations and extreme conduct. He described one occasion when he, Paul, and Pete were lying in their bunk beds, trying to sleep, only for John to barge into the room in a wild state. So Lewison sets up the excuse for John's behavior before he even shares the anecdote, and then he also diffuses the blame by pointing out that George himself took a lot of drugs, and tells us ahead of time that George was okay with John's worst behavior. He knew better than most the sum effect of the drugs. He understood. Lewison then describes John as already on a tear when he enters the room, implying that whatever upset John had nothing to do with what was going on in Paul's bed, which, again, is not what George said. He said, one night, John came in And some chick was in bed with Paul, and John cut up all her clothes with a pair of scissors and was stabbing the wardrobe. Now, again, we don't know what set John off. But there's no reason to assume it wasn't the woman in Paul's bed. Lewison doesn't ever speculate about who she was or her relationship to John or to Paul, or if this attack was personally motivated, which is fine if he doesn't want to speculate, that's fair. Information we just don't have. But there's also no reason to just assume that her identity was irrelevant, as TuneIn seems to. Now, George does say in the longer quote from Anthology that John got that way because of the drugs, But by that way, I'm assuming he means violent and out of control. Yeah. Which, okay, fine. But Preluden didn't make anyone else cut up the clothing of a naked woman who's sleeping with Paul. Right. That's very specific. I mean, maybe she was collateral damage, but, you know, maybe she was the target. Well, yeah. She's the victim. I mean, they all kind of are. But she especially... the one targeted it may well have had something to do with her well and not to be whatever but cutting is a fine motor skill like stabbing is not cutting Mm. is a fine motor skill so like that is not typically something that somebody does if they're drunk that's true disordered do you know what i mean that's true and he went specifically yes he went for her maybe he's yeah yeah, so I mean, that- why? If he had in- wandered in and like yes. s- just stabbed the walls or the wardrobe, that would be like, well, that's just un- unfocused. Yes. Just wild behavior. But now to go for- after her clothes? Lewison also says that Paul and Pete were trying to sleep, although, again, George most definitely did not say that. George says some chick was in bed with Paul. And she was naked. So either they were. And flagrante or at least recently post flagrante which also means to spell this out that if john got out of control as george feared more out of control than stabbing a wardrobe with a pair of scissors if he had gotten out of control and physically attacked this woman which would not have been out of character paul would have had to defend her and or himself while naked Or, at the very least, with his pants down. George Harrison told this story without detail or much flourish and with a Mm -hmm. bit of, you know, ironic humor at the end. But that doesn't mean it wasn't a big deal or that it wouldn't have been extremely frightening, not just to George, but to Paul and to everybody in the room. Of course. Not least of which this poor woman. Well, she doesn't even know this guy would have been terrified we assume well certainly not as well as george does and if george is scared yeah right john is being violently aggressive has a weapon and paul is naked and lewison doesn't address any of that or pay any attention to the fact that john destroyed this woman's clothes stranding her naked in a dangerous situation Instead, he writes this. Handling John was something his friends were well used to doing. If he didn't murder them in their beds, there was no greater buddy. They might fear for their lives, but they loved him still. No way would they walk out and join another group. John was just John. And Paul and George's hero worship stayed fully intact. Okay, so instead of choosing to call John a hero after this incident, Mr. Lewison could have taken a moment to reflect on what this experience might have actually been like for John's bandmates or for Paul's date. I mean, is it possible that this affected George and Paul in any way whatsoever? Other than cementing their hero worship. If he didn't murder them in their beds, there was no greater buddy. Even if it's a little tongue-in-cheek. Which, I don't know. Yeah, I think it is supposed to be funny. It's kind of not actually funny. A strange man on drugs? with scissors who's destroying her clothes well she's definitely the one most at risk in this scenario well and if this woman is a a prostitute or a stripper then i I mean do i need to say it yeah (laughs) acceptable collateral damage of course can we also talk about lewison's little no way would they walk out and join another group because that would be their only option if they left john they would have to find another John to allow yeah. them to join a group. They wouldn't be capable of
1: Starting, making their own
0: group. Yes. As if the Beatles would still exist if George and Paul left. But, of course, they would never branch off into their own group because they hero worship John so much. You can't, that's, you're just making that up. Nobody you, said you that. Exactly. You don't know. Maybe it did knock their hero worship down a few pegs. Without a direct quote from Paul that says, yeah, I remember mm-hmm. that time John was uh, brandishing a pair of scissors and destroyed the clothing of my date while she was still naked in bed with me. I distinctly remember after that incident thinking, wow, I really worship John. I sure am glad that that hero worship is still intact. Yes, fully, fully intact. Fully and intact. George's too. Yeah. he's still that- talked about it. Yeah, right. George and I talked about it and agreed that our hero worship was still fully intact, not a scratch on it. Yeah. To take what I assume was a scary and somewhat traumatic event for Paul and George and to switch right into oh my god that they loved him still as if, like, why? There was no greater buddy. They loved him still. Hero worship. If you want to make the point that George and Paul were still friends with John and still loved him that's absolutely fine. But to say that their hero worship stayed fully intact without a quote to support that is outrageous. I mean it just makes it seem like the only reason you reported this was so you could aggrandize John immediately afterward. Or maybe it's just a knee-jerk reaction to having had to write something so alarming. I don't know. It's like, okay, you tell this story, and the reaction is, oh my god, that's terrible. And Lewison's like, right, it was terrible, but think about this. How awesome Mm. was John that they didn't (laughs) mind his terrible behavior? That must tell you that he's an incredible, fantastic person. Because they wouldn't have tolerated this behavior from... Anyone else. Yes. And that's the most important thing to take away from this anecdote and this book. You got to remember, even when you read wild shit, the most important thing to remember at all times is that John was the best. Mm -hmm. No greater buddy, even if he murdered them. Okay. So, by that logic, (laughs) every time a man in the 50s or 60s, got away with something awful, it means that he was fantastic? What are you Mm. even saying? (laughs) Yeah, wow. That puts different spin on it. Yeah, someone's ability to get away with doing terrible things is in proportion to their quality as a human being. Okay. That's a wild take, right? Yeah. Yeah obviously they still loved him but that doesn't mean that they were unaffected by John's rages maybe it made them sorry for him I think there's much more evidence of that that it made them protective of him and sympathetic toward him rather than (laughs) worshiping him Yeah, well, if your only takeaway from every event is going to be that John Lennon was still loved, then let's cut to the chase. All the Beatles still love John until his death. All the Beatles love each other. Okay, Mm -hmm. I so I've spoiled the ending, but now we don't (laughs) have to repeat it every few pages. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And now maybe we can move beyond that and focus more on how specific events are actually impacting the people involved. Also, it's not as if John's substance abuse and behavior when he was intoxicated are just tangential to the larger story. It's actually very important because, you know, for one thing, John's going to have another drunken violent outburst real soon at Paul's Mm. 21st birthday, and it's going to endanger the band. So this is a highly, highly relevant topic which will affect the Beatles interpersonally and professionally, and will continue to do so all the way through to the breakup. So framing this early incident so glibly and glossing over how John's younger friends had to get used to handling him from the beginning is inappropriate. Mm-hmm. All right, Daphne, so why does this matter? What is our takeaway here? Well, for starters, we are not arguing that John doesn't deserve empathy. John is one of the four main subjects of this book, and we expect Lewis to provide John's point of view. On the other hand, we don't want to read excuses for bigotry and physical abuse, no matter who is committing them. To be fair, we don't always need the text itself to condemn the morality of the times. Right, but we also don't need or want to hear a defense of the morality of the times. Mm -hmm. It's incredibly condescending to be reminded over and over that the 1950s and 60s were a different time. (laughs) Women, people of color, queer persons, Jews, people with disabilities, are actually quite aware of how different things used to be. We understand that things used to be different. Things used to be worse. So it's extremely inappropriate to reprimand the reader who may feel a certain way about our shared cultural past. Yeah we're allowed to resent the attitudes of the past. We're allowed to judge the people who typified those attitudes and who propped up that culture, just as we're allowed to admire them when they rise above it and pave a new way forward. But using John's worst behavior as a springboard to immediately go back to aggrandizing and complimenting him is insensitive and insulting to your readers. Rationalizing awful behavior and hurtful language is inappropriate, unnecessary, and fanish. The objective of portraying John Lennon in as flattering a light as possible becomes transparent in passages like the ones we shared in this episode. And that objective wouldn't even necessarily be a huge problem if it was applied to all the Beatles across the board. But as we feel we've proven, it definitely is not. TuneIn portrays Paul McCartney unsympathetically and, as we've demonstrated, goes to great lengths, including some we personally consider over the line to invoke sympathy and admiration for John Lennon. In addition to the minimization of John's bad behavior, uh, remember how we said in the intro what Lewison writes about John Lennon's good attributes? How he personally calls John honest, tender, generous, sincere, faithful, loyal, forthright, fearless, benign, and a hero? Well, consider the fact that, by contrast, Lewison chooses not to write about any of Paul McCartney's redeeming character traits. He pays him the superficial compliments of being nice, charming, and friendly. And once, Lewison writes that he was kind to Rosa, the Hamburg restroom attendant. That is it. In all of TuneIn, That is all Lewison himself has to say about Paul McCartney's good side. To see our full word search breakdown, which includes not just Lewison's own words, but the words of people he quoted in TuneIn, check out our website, anotherkindofmind.com. Now, why would a Beatles biographer make the choice to suggest such a huge imbalance between the moral characters of two of its main subjects. Can it be that Paul McCartney simply has no redeeming qualities? Or that he's just too empty and uninteresting to create a compelling portrait? In a word, no. <laughs> that premise is absurd. And we'll show you why in episode 10 unseen paul (laughs) where we will present and analyze numerous stories and direct quotes which will bring young paul mccartney into clearer focus we would love for that episode to be seen as a companion to tune in to round out paul's biography and balance the narrative okay so then perhaps this negative perception of paul reflects lewison's personal views well if it does reflect mr lewison's personal views how could it then be okay for him to package his own personal views as a quote history of deep level inquiry where the information is tested accurate and free of airbrushing embellishment and guesswork written with an open mind and even hands well that's a hell of a good question join us as we approach the finish line of our fine tuning series a mere three episodes remain in our sprawling behemoth coming up next is WTF a final collection of head scratching tidbits from TuneIn (laughs) things that make you go "Mm hmm (laughs) 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 this will be a fun one for sure Yes, a delicious smorgasbord of fine delicacies, <laughs> and then, oh, then comes Unseen Paul with all the characterization that is missing about Mr. Yes. McCartney from Tune In, and finally, our series wrap party, uh, partay. Yes. Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah, you're all invited. Woohoo! Yeah, RSVP. <laughs> That's a good one. What are you going to be drinking for the wrap party, Miss Daphne? Oh, uh, whatever I can get my hands on, really. Yeah, right. Thank you for listening to Another Kind of Mind. For supplemental material on fine tuning, visit our website at anotherkindofmind.com. Want to discuss fine tuning with other Acom listeners? got thoughts questions disagreements you can find and follow us on social media we also have a discussion group on the old facebook that listeners can request to join you can also email us at acompodcast at gmail.com